CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Look, Mommy, there's no plane up in the sky. During the London Blitz, Nazi planes blasted England almost daily for eight solid months. Best-selling author Eric Larson uncovers diaries and documents that reveal how Britain survived under Winston Churchill's unflinching leadership. Churchill was, I do believe, on some level, simply fearless. But he also recognized that by conveying a sense of this to others, that this was emboldening them as well. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, Eric Larson talks about the splendid and the vile at the Carter Presidential Library, bringing the past alive in almost cinematic detail. Also today, Jerry Wexler forever changed the sound of American music by recording stars like Aretha Franklin down south. He really represents like a producer that you know wasn't out to accomplish his objectives for the music. He was trying to figure out what made these artists special and do whatever he could to bring them out. The Atlanta Jewish Music Festival pays some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On May 10th of 1940, Hitler invaded Holland and Belgium, and Winston Churchill was named Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He addressed the House of Commons three days later. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Six weeks later, France fell. In a broadcast to the nation, Churchill warned the British of a likely Nazi invasion. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. From early September to the following May, German planes pommeled London and other cities from the air almost nightly. Landmarks were pulverized. Some 29,000 died in London alone. That the British bulldog galvanized resistance is well known. Author Eric Larson combed through documents, diaries, and previously unreleased intelligence to better understand how the nation survived. His new book, The Splendid and the Vile, follows that fateful year when Churchill led Great Britain from the edge of the abyss. I spoke with the multiple best-selling author in front of a packed crowd at the Carter Presidential Library at an event for Acapella Books and asked Eric Larson why we need another book about Winston Churchill. He said it was in part moving from Seattle to New York, where he could imagine living through 9-11. You know, the book sort of happened to me. I mean, I did not go out looking for a way to write about Winston Churchill. I really did not. When I got to New York, I suddenly realized in a very, very vivid, visceral way that the experience of 9-11 in New York City had been very, very different for people. They heard the sirens, they saw the ash floating in the wind, they saw the smoke, but above all, there was this sense of violation of their, of their home city. I knew a little bit about the Blitz from past interests, and I started thinking, how would anybody have survived what was, if, in essence, 57 consecutive 9-11s? How do you survive 57 nights of bombing, which is what happened during the Blitz in London, and another six months of intensifying raids after that? How do you actually go about enduring that kind of assault? So I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll write about, it seemed like an interesting subject to explore for a book, so maybe I'll write about a family, a typical family in London. 
And then one thing led to another, and I thought, well, why not write about the quintessential family in London, Winston Churchill and his family, and sort of see how they actually went about the day-to-day -day process of, of living through this event. And I even came up with a way to think about it. So I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be like Downton and Downing, you know? So that's how, that's how I came to it. It was tense. This, there's so much tension in this book. That's part of the pacing of it that you're going through this year. There's this preparation for a land invasion, uh, the practical matters, the bulwarks on the beachheads, and figuring out how you're going to bury thousands, tens of thousands of people. The queen learning how to shoot, shoot with a revolver. A yeah, revolver, and but you bring us also inside of Hitler's inner circle. Right. And we hear, we learn about Goebbels' ingenious propaganda campaign that continued throughout the war. Can you give us some examples of how that worked? It was, first of all, it was very important to me to have the, the, the German side of the story from a narrative perspective, because it's important to know what the enemy is thinking when you've got your victim on the other side of the channel. Goebbels um, was an incredibly clever, malignant force in terms of public propaganda. Like one of his tactics was he wanted to really terrify the British populace. So he used, he made fake transmitters that would seem to British listeners as if they were British radio stations. And he would use them in some really very darkly clever ways. For example, he would um, have these radio stations do classes in how to prepare for an air raid, how to defend yourself and your family against an air raid. But these classes would be so deliberately explicit, full of gore and mayhem, that they in, in themselves would terrify the listening audience. And in another, another act of propaganda, he had a, the radio stations had a class in making Molotov cocktails to fight the Germans who were land, going to be landing in England. So, so, so follow this. I mean, these transmitters, which people believe were English transmitters, were going to have a class in making Molotov cocktails for blowing up incoming German tanks. The idea, though, was, and this is, this is how nefarious Goebbels was, that was the class. And then later in the week, there was another series of announcements on these transmitters saying that, oh, by the way, don't make these Molotov cocktails. These classes, people have been blowing themselves up. And this is a way of terrifying further the populace. He was just a nefarious guy. Yeah. Well, in response, the Brits had to build planes quickly. They did the had to RAF. build planes quickly, yeah. And one of the things that this book brings us into is the domestic life, the family life, the day-to-day -day work life of Churchill and what he called his secret circle. Right. And these were not bureaucrats. These are aristocrats uh, for the most part. Some were aristocrats. Some were, some were sort of hard-scrabble tough guys. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and Lord Beaverbrook is one of the characters yes. that just comes across. You will see it in the, in the book when you read it. Max Aitken, he was named the new minister of the new ministry of aircraft production. Correct. A remarkable output of planes. Why was he the right person for Yeah, that? so 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 Lord Beaverbrook is one of my my favorite my favorite characters. He was he was a very interesting looking guy. He was somebody one of one of Churchill's ministers described him as being a goblin. Um, he was a very enthusiastic, very energetic, very sort of potentially capricious guy also, but he 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 knew how to get things done. And Churchill appointed him to be Minister of Aircraft Production because Churchill, Churchill was not a terrific um, strategist, he was not a terrific tactician, but one thing he did get from the very beginning was that if there was gonna be any way to stop the Germans from invading England, from invading Britain, 
it was to have a strong force of, of fighters to prevent the German Air Force from achieving air superiority. That was all important. So it was very important to ramp up production of, of aircraft. Um, uh, the aircraft industry was sort of not moribund, but was slowly increasing production along a timetable that, that had been set long before in anticipation of a potential for, for war. But now suddenly the war was upon them. The, 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 the threat of invasion was very real. There were, you know, I mean, there was a you know, wide speculation that the invasion could happen any day. You know, you'd be sitting in your garden reading the paper and you'd look up and there'd be a paratrooper. I mean, people were afraid of this very thing. So when Churchill put Beaverbrook in charge of the Ministry of Aircraft Production, he knew exactly what he was doing. He put this guy in charge to shake up the industry and it worked. He, he began producing aircraft at, at, at a near magical rate. And had he not, the, the course of history could actually have been very different. Now, Beaverbrook was Beaverbrook, and he was a real pain in the you-know-what. And, and you know, when he didn't get his way, he acted like a spoiled toddler, and he would resign. He resigned in the course of the book 14 times. <laughs> 14 times. But always talk, they're like high drama lovers on some level. Very much like, like high drama lovers. I mean, they, and they would both, they were both big fans of dictating. And so you can, I can easily envision a scene in the, you know, episode 29 of The Crown, you know, whatever. <laughs> I can easily envision a scene where they're both, they're both, you know, cut away. This guy's, this guy's dictating his fierce reply. This guy's dictating, Churchill's dictating his fierce reply and this back and forth and back and forth. They were very dynamic characters. There's a great quote. Uh, Winston Churchill himself said, some people take drugs, I take Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was this fundamental assumption that Britain would fall to the Nazis, you know, held by many. Um, and Hermann Goering predicted it would take four days to yes. wipe out the Royal Air Force. Yes, yes. So yeah, Her Hermann Goering, head of, head of the Luftwaffe, was, he was so evil. He was so awful. He was so joyously corrupt. This man was corrupt to the core. And he was also arrogant. He had vast, you know, hubris knew no, no bounds. And he had a complete conviction that his Luftwaffe, this beloved Air Force of his, could win the war all by itself if necessary. He was a very, very potent, very, I think, a very interesting character. Well, but then and all the while, by the way, he was stealing art, gobs of art throughout. No, seriously, he had four trains devoted to, to, the, to the theft of art, uh, mostly from, from Jewish households. Yeah, absolutely criminal. But he also, you know, thought he'd wipe out the RAF in four days. Four then, days. then you could mount Operation Sea Lion. Then it was three weeks. And then come around September, the beginning of September, this is the day we're going to absolutely annihilate London. So can you give us a little sense of that day? Yeah, yeah. So, but one of the things I didn't appreciate was this, this slow and I think very suspenseful ramp up to, to the final decision to bomb London. This was not a, a, a situation where the Germans had sat around saying, OK, now we've wiped out France. Let's go after London. This is the next step. This was a slowly accreting kind of thing. So then comes September 7, 1940, the day that this, this, this attack, this first attack is going to take place. And you know, try and picture this, you know, it's, it's London. London has become actually a little bit complacent because while there have been at this point been lots of raids around Britain as the, as the Luftwaffe is sort of testing its strengths and trying to attack air, aircraft manufacturing and so forth. But you know, they're, 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 here's September 7th and it's another, 
Another nice, very nice day in London, actually quite warm, temperatures up in the 90s, there's a haze over the city, barrage balloons, which are these gigantic balloons are sort of drifting over the city, people are in the parks enjoying themselves, stores are packed in Piccadilly and so forth, and then suddenly, you know, around at tea time and that afternoon, the bombers come. If you can imagine that, you know, suddenly this, the sky is full of German bombers. I mean, it's just kind of incomprehensible. When I was in London doing a lot of, I did a lot of research in, in London at the archives of the UK, and I would stay in a hotel in London, and periodically I, I would find myself looking out the window uh, my, uh, of my room at dusk and just trying to imagine that. Suddenly, you know, this, instead of this beautiful blue sky, yes, it was a blue sky, even though it was London, instead of this, this beautiful blue sky, the sky would be just full of German bombers and the noise gradually building, and the next thing you know, Bombs are falling. Yeah, and complete destruction. But Goering and Goebbels throughout the war were bewildered over Churchill's refusal to right. surrender. What did they fail to understand about him? <laughs> they failed to understand Churchill. Churchill was responsible for why London ultimately got, got bombed because Churchill would just, he would not give in. And Hitler actually for the first, uh, probably from May 1943, July, August, Hitler really did want to try to bring Britain to the peace table because he had plans. He wanted to begin his Eastern campaign against the Russians, and he did not want to have this other enemy behind him as, as a rear guard force. And he was trying to neutralize that in the best way. And Churchill was not having it. Churchill was not, not having it. And, and Churchill being Churchill, he was he was able to actually to embolden the British public in, in a lot of very interesting ways. What he did was he taught the British the art of being fearless. I think it was a learned thing, and he taught them how to do that. And that really ticked off Hitler. That really ticked off Hitler. And another thing that ticked off Hitler or scared him was the prospect of the United States coming into the war. That was another sort of scary thing. Well, that's another very interesting element to me as, I, as a neophyte entering this world of Churchill. Um, is I had not, and, and maybe this is my advantage as, as, as an American who's venturing into these, into these waters, but, but I had not appreciated the extent to which from the very beginning he was counting on America entering the war. This was something he knew from day one. There's a, there's a moment where he is talking to his son, Randolph, who's also a big character in the story. He comes to visit Churchill in his, in his rooms at, at uh, actually at this point it was the, the, the Admiralty House because he hadn't moved into 10 Downing Street yet because he wanted to give Chamberlain time to move out in a, in a dignified way. So he's shaving and Randolph is sitting there and they're talking about the war and Randolph is expressing skepticism that Britain can possibly win. He thinks maybe they could, they could you know, hold, hold out but that they couldn't possibly win. And Churchill was like, no, we're, we're going to win. And Randolph is, is like, well, how do you propose to do that? And Churchill throws his razor into the sink, turns, and he says, we're going to drag America in. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. And then, and he really did. He made step by step, he courted, he courted Roosevelt, um, as he himself admitted, as, 
as, as, as ardently as any lover courts the target of his affections. Well, what was going on for Roosevelt in the U.S.? Give us a sense of the complications for him thinking about coming to Britain's aid at that point. Yeah, so Roosevelt was in a very, very tricky situation because America was, was profoundly isolationist, did not want to enter the war. But Roosevelt knew on, on some level, I'm convinced, that, that it would be necessary at some point, but he could not act before America was ready. So you know, Churchill kind of knew that Roosevelt was willing to be seduced on some level. For, for much of this period, the question was, would he run for a third term? And he was, not, he was not saying. He was very coy about that, really, until pretty much the last minute. But suddenly, he, he's running for a third term, and it became all the more important not to alienate vast swaths of, of, of voters. So it was very, very tricky from Roosevelt's perspective. And this made the courtship really, really tricky for, for Churchill. The new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Eric Larson, followed by Winston Churchill himself, whose soaring words kept the British spirits up and rippled out to the Americans he so desperately needed to keep Britain from the brink. As for the Germans, the name of their operation to obliterate the English city of Coventry, Moonlight Sonata. After the Beethoven composition, we are listening to right now as we head into a break. I'm Virginia Prescott. We will be right back with Eric Larson talking about the splendid and the vile from our conversation recorded live at the Carter Presidential Library. This is On Second Thought. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Eric Larson, recorded live at the Carter Presidential Library for GPB's On Second Thought. Larson's multiple best-selling books include Devil in the White City, Dead Wake, and others. And they're known for uncovering details and characters that give readers a new lens on historical events. Enemy bombers travel at hundreds of miles an hour. Every town is a target. Any town is a target. His newest book, The Splendid and the Vile, uncovers how Winston Churchill's family, inner circle, and the British public survived through the London Blitz, eight months of Germany's Luftwaffe bombing raids on English cities. Almost 45,000 people were killed in nearly nightly bombings. Churchill often walked the streets to survey the damage himself. Thick smoke hangs over the heart of Britain as a choking dawn reveals the terrors of the night. London has been wounded during the hours of darkness, but what colossal strength runs in her veins? But in spite of it all, London carries on. In no uncertain voice, she echoes Mr. Churchill's words, we'll give it to them back. In frequent radio addresses, Churchill buoyed the spirits of Britons, assuring the public that if Hitler's indiscriminate slaughter was designed to push them to surrender, his plan had backfired. He has lighted a fire which will burn with a steady and consuming flame 
until the last vestiges of Nazi tyranny have been burnt out of Europe. In his research for the book, Eric Larson discovered an archive of mass observation diaries where ordinary citizens recorded their experiences for social science research. On stage at the Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta, I asked Eric Larson what he found in them. Yeah, this is another, another revelation to me. I mean, I, I, think, I think hardcore Churchill scholars uh, are familiar with, with mass observation. I was not. So along comes the war, the war begins, uh, hundreds of these diarists continued to keep their diaries, and this becomes this incredible trove of, of very detailed information about, about the daily experience of citizens during the war. My favorite of these was by a young woman named Olivia Cockett, who, who I adore. She was having an, an affair with a married man. She was a clerk with Scotland Yard. She was having an affair with a married man. And, and you know, that this, 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 the, their lives together during this period were just, just absolutely fraught. When you think about dating in, 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 a, in a circumstance where bombs are falling, I mean, you know, it was just a, sort of an incredible experience. And then what happened, though, was, and I love this part especially, was that she found herself becoming emboldened paradoxically. You know, I mean, you know, the bombs are falling, and you know, you could you could cower and, and whatever, but but she's like she was not having this. And when one day, when an incendiary, these were these were these were not high explosive bombs; they were what were typically the preamble. These were these were devices that would land and 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 set fire to things. They were incendiary bombs. One of these landed outside her her house in the backyard, and she put out the incendiary herself. She put this thing out. And that so emboldened her after that. She was like, you know, she, you know nothing, nothing super terrified her. Meanwhile, her, 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 her boyfriend, this guy, this married guy with whom she was having the affair, was going the other direction and becoming, <laughs> becoming a coward. And, and it, was, it really annoyed her no end that this guy was suddenly a chicken. You know, so, so I love this whole evolution of her, her story. Well, th that's what's so great about this is we get the high-level decision makers, you know, the turning of the, the vortex of the war, and then a sense on a very personal level how their lives are affected in these accounts, which seems to me is peak Eric Larson, you know, the <laughs> sort you. of like placing you in an experience on a very sensory level. What, what stood out for you about that kind of like how people were experiencing this? The sex. <laughs> no, no, actually, no, it's true, it's true. The, 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 there was a the, lot the blitz, of sex going the blitz, on. The Blitz actually seemed to, seemed to sort of unleash this hyper level of libido um, uh, in, in London. And why, and why not? If you think you're going to die, you know, what's the next thing you want to do? You know, it's, it's um, so, so, and this was a very, this is a very, very profound thing in, in that era. Um, although paradoxically, this one guy I talk about in the book, paradoxically, this, this lingerie salesman was complaining because for whatever reason, the lingerie sales had plummeted, <laughs> had plummeted. I mean, sex was everywhere, um, but the lingerie sales were plummeting. And, and my feeling is you no longer needed it. I mean, that's, maybe I'm wrong, but you know. Anyway. Well, right, the, the, the normal barriers had fallen. Yeah. You know, there are many scenes of Winston Churchill walking around areas that had been devastated by bombs. You know, people are sweeping up glass. There is the smell of cordite everywhere. And he's openly weeping. Right. 
And and it's so contrary to the, the, I guess, the popular image of British resolve and rigidity and also class hierarchy. Yeah. You have people cramming together into houses, taking in people right. whose houses had been bombed. You have the wealthy cavorting in hotel lobbies in their pajamas, you know, yeah. and this amped up libido. Yeah. It's like the barriers came down and the English got real. <laughs> I mean, is, do you think that's part of the resolve? Well, I think the English were always real, but they hit it, you know. And that, now suddenly, now suddenly, you know, with sex everywhere and with, 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 with all these aristocrats, you know, <laughs> sleeping in the same shelters and in the basement of the of Claridge's and of the Ritz and so forth, you know, things barriers barriers were were starting starting to break down. Not entirely, but but. But it was, I mean, the, the, the texture of life definitely, definitely changed. I, it became to me very, very compelling. Well, that's the, in the title, The Splendid and the Vile. Yes, yeah. There's this horrible experience happening, but there is something so, you know, deeply moving and uh, about it. Can you give us a little bit more on the title? Yeah, yeah, I'll explain where that came from easily. Um, one of the key characters in, in the book is, uh, is a, a fellow named John Colville. He's a, one, of, one of Churchill's private secretaries. And he kept this diary, a day-to-day -day diary. Um, this was a wonderful diary. It was written beautifully, and, and Colville was an acute observer of, of, of Churchill, of his family, um, all kinds of inside gossip and so forth. One night, during a, during a particularly severe raid, Colville is in a bedroom and is looking out the window, watching this raid unfold. And Colville just found it absolutely spectacular, just spectacular. And he called it an incredible juxtaposition of splendor and human vileness. And as soon as I read that entry in the diary, I thought, that's my title, mm. The Splendid and the Vile. So. He also gives a real felt sense of the experience at Checkers. This is the yes. weekend home of Churchill and his family. It's officially given to the prime yeah. minister for the time. They also stayed at another place on, on, on full, moon nights full moon nights because they would be a target. But give us a sense of life at Checkers. So Checkers, um, Checkers first a little, little, little background. Checkers is indeed, to this day, the prime ministerial country estate. It was given to the government, this tremendous gesture of generosity, given to the government in 1917 by its owner at the, at the time, Arthur Lee. The point being that, that it, was a, it was to be a refuge for prime ministers. They were not to do any work whatsoever at Checkers. This was for purely to restore themselves in the hopes that leadership would improve because they had spent this, this time at Checkers. Well, enter Churchill, and this idea of not doing any, any work at Checkers went completely out the window. I mean, this became sort of his second command post. Every weekend, he had dozens of guests. I mean, there were these fabulous lunches, you know, there's croquet, and these lunches, tea, and these dinners, which were just absolute glittering affairs of, of with, with, you know, fancy talk and ministers and ministers of government uh, all gathered around the table, followed by more talk, more brandy, of course, um, and, and all manner of excellent talk until like two or three o'clock in the morning. This is like every single weekend at Checkers. One of the best weekends and one of my favorite things in, in the book. See, one, one of the things that surprised me really about Churchill was how much fun the man could be, how much fun he was. Now, his staff also knew him to be incredibly inconsiderate, incredibly rude, 
but they loved him largely because he had this, this, this incredible sense of fun. Mm -hmm. So one night, there's this scene where, where um, and this, this is one I, I, I document in, in the book. One night, um, there's all these guests at, at, at Checkers, and uh, Churchill turns on the gramophone, puts on some military, military music, and decides that when all these guests gather around the, 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 the great hall there, that he is going to do some uh, uh, military exercises. He is, at this point, wearing his blue siren suit. This is a one-piece, pale blue uh, outfit that he designed that could be pulled on in a heartbeat um, in case he had, had to put it on quickly. And it made him, honestly, look like a sort of rather large, pale blue Easter egg. Um, so he had that on, but he also had on his shining gold and red dragon dressing gown. He got his Mandlicker rifle, put his bayonet at the end, and he began doing bayonet drills to the music in this getup after this dinner at Checkers, just round and around doing, you know, and very seriously doing bayonet drills and so forth, because he had been he had been a soldier. Much to the hilarity of all the guests who were just virtually doubled over by the by the image of the Prime Minister of Britain, the guy who was going to save the day, dressed up in this pale blue Easter egg, you know, and it's it's one of the best scenes I think that. Maybe we should mention that there was a tremendous wine budget. At tremendous Chinese. wine budget, wine. Yeah, there was a tremendous wine budget, and and, and uh, they uh, and and one thing I can guarantee you that is in my book and is no other book I, I believe ever done about Churchill, and that's saying a lot, is uh, the, uh, this, this part about him getting his wine from the Government Hospitality Fund, and and uh, all the rules that came with that because of rationing and so forth, all the rules that came with that, they had to the Churchills. On weekends when they were entered, they could only use this wine for foreign visitors. So of course they made sure there was a foreign visitor there like every weekend. But they could only use this wine for, for, for foreign visitors and they had to keep very close track on what wines, how much wine, and how much was drunk by whom. And, and you know, this is, uh, this is sort of a little insight into how, how one actually had to deal with the daily, the daily, daily issues of the war. Well, uh, Colville, who he calls Jock, Jock, Jock Colville, also wants to become an RAF pilot, a right. Royal Air Force pilot. These, these are the great heroes of this era. Right. The German pilots even admired the brio of the RAF. Oh, they did. They did. Well, and you learned, uh, there's something I'd never seen before about how the German pilots who f had been downed and taken prisoner in Britain were treated. This, that was interesting to me. I wonder if you could yeah, share that. Yeah, boy, the, the, the British intelligence operation um, uh, that, that kicked in when, because there were, there were all these, uh, all these downed uh, German pilots was really cunning, really clever. Um, they had these interrogation centers where the rooms were, were, were um, had listening devices. Um, one standard tactic was to you know, interview a, a captured member of a bomber crew and then put him back into a cell with other members of the Luftwaffe, and then to listen into the conversation. It wasn't the actual interrogation that proved fruitful. It was when these guys got back among their peers, then they would just blab like crazy. Mm -hmm. But also, the, the, the British interrogators were, were incredibly clever that when they, when, they, when they got somebody who was actually seen to be cooperative, they treated them very well to the point where they would take them on tours of London. They would take them to the theater 
to watch, watch shows. The point being to, to show these guys who had been indoctrinated by Goering and so forth that London was about to be, was a burn to a crisp and Britain was about to fall. This experience of seeing a show and seeing stores fall and so forth taught these guys that they had been lied to, that Britain was nowhere near collapse. And this was a, 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 a real intelligence coup. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Eric Larson talking about his book, The Splendid and the Vile, recorded live at the Carter Presidential Library for GPB's On Second Thought. Um, you talked a little bit about Winston Churchill as such an endearing man, but also a cruel man. And he, he was. I didn't say he, cruel. I'm I sorry. I'm rude sorry. He, and inconsiderate. Thank you. There's a difference. That. There is a real difference there. But he was able to switch tacks in an instant, an incredibly yes. agile leader. But he, he also didn't give anyone time off for Christmas. He kept aides up at all hours. He yeah. yelled, he glowered, he dictated at them from the bathtub, yeah. drinking all day long, pretty much. All day long. But he, very endearing, saw it all as an adventure. Uh, some of my younger colleagues were saying to me, he would so be canceled today. <laughs> be I mean, so what, what, is your, what is your sense of like him as a man in power and, and the, the practice of leadership? Well, you know, he, 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 he was, I think he was one of the finest leaders of, of history. Um, did, um, I'm sorry, did you think that going in? Did you uh, know? No, no, I didn't really have, I didn't re really think much. I was kind of like everybody else. I mean, I, I, well, I think everybody else, I was a little bit fascinated by Churchill. Mm -hmm. I liked the, liked the idea of Churchill. I knew of some of his speeches and so forth. But, you know, I'm also, I'm also sort of, a, I was kind of a trained skeptic. So I didn't really, you know, I, I went in with a, with a sense, well, okay, what really happened here? And I, but I came away feeling feeling, I mean, honestly, for me, it was kind of a, kind of, as, as the book progressed and as, uh, honestly, as the American political situation of today degraded, I, be, I began to see more and more to feel like this was a refuge for me going into this period where, where Churchill was just this incredible leader. And, I'm sorry, and, and but the London Blitz as a refuge. Is, I know, I have, to, I have to stop myself and say, okay, okay, so, so my refuge is, is London with bombs falling, mass death, darkness. Things have to be pretty bad for that to be a refuge, you know? So, so but anyway, I, I really found him to be a very, very potent, um, uh, potent leader, and sort of a reminder of, of how one goes about that. And that's a big part of the book is how, how he, he, he was acutely aware of the power of symbolic acts. Mm -hmm. Like going and visiting the sites where people Like visiting bombed out areas, yeah. like, you know, when raids occurred, Churchill more often than not would climb to the nearest rooftop and watch. Mm -hmm. it, and, and, and he made sure people knew it. He would drag his staff, poor John Colville, he'd drag them up to the rooftop with him as these raids were, were occurring. So this was, a, this was, I mean, Churchill was, I, I, I do believe on some level, simply fearless, but, but he also recognized that by conveying a sense of this to others, that he, this was emboldening them as well. Well, there are so many of those beautiful details here. I just want to read to you something from the aftermath of a bombing. As buildings erupted, thunderheads of pulverized brick, stone, plaster, and mortar billowed from eaves and attics, roofs and chimneys, hearths and furnaces, dust from the age of Cromwell, Dickens, and Victoria. It's just beautiful. Um, and dust, by the way, was 
It's one of the things that stood out in, 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 in probably 75 to 80% of the, the personal accounts and diaries and so forth that I read of, of the Blitz and people who actually witnessed bombings was dust. Dust, just plumes billowing from buildings and just covering everything, every one. Well, there is, you know, the great man theory of history that, uh, that, that no one else could have done it but Churchill. And, and at first, King George, he didn't really trust Winston Churchill. No, he did not. But then decides later, I could not have a better prime minister at this critical time. Would the Brits have risen to the occasion under anyone else? All right, so that, that's speculative fiction. Uh, not speculative fiction, but speculative there, history. There's more. I've got history. more of that. Oh, okay. and, and it's very hard for, for me to even, even address that because so many things are hard to even speculate on. I mean, if, if there had been no Churchill... You know, um, would would Britain have prevailed? And it's very tempting to say, well, probably not. On the other hand, somebody else may have stepped forward. Mm -hmm. What is compelling to think about in this context is is how how often Churchill put himself at risk for creating exactly that situation where there would be no Churchill. I mean, I was impressed with the fact that at five five different occasions um, before the, the first bombs began to fall on London, and as France was falling, Churchill flew to France in his favorite Flamingo aircraft, this very poshly, poshly upholstered aircraft, with, with senior members of his government, the, despite the fact that the Luftwaffe was, you know, clouding the skies with fighters and bombers and so forth. And he's still, I mean, I don't even like to fly in, in period. And here's this guy flying in wartime with German planes all over the place. One of his flights, you know, they, they can look down the coast and cities in France are literally on fire as he's flying to meet with French officials. Anything could have happened. We would have had no Churchill. And I don't, I don't know, I, I really don't feel capable of speculating as to what would have happened then. Excerpts there of my interview with Eric Larson, recorded live at the Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta at an event for Acapella Books. We did have a much longer conversation, including a Q&A with the audience and some details on Devil in the White City, which Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese are turning into a TV series. Also much more on the London Blitz, remembered by generations of Britons and dramatized in this song, Goodbye Blue Sky by Pink Floyd. You can listen to our full conversation at gpbnews.org. Our thanks to Brandon Bishop and Tony Clark at the Carter Presidential Library. Also, producers Priya Mahadevan and supervising producer Amelia Brock. Our engineers Jake Troyer and Jesse Nicewanger. You can keep up with us on Twitter at OST Talk or on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. And you can listen on your own time, downloading our podcast for free at gpb.org slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For decades, race music was the euphemism for recordings by African-American artists. Well, that didn't sit well for a young music journalist named Jerry Wexler, who coined the term rhythm and blues in 1949. It sung and swung like the music itself, Wexler later wrote, and it stuck. But it was as an executive and producer at Atlantic Records that Wexler forever changed American music. He introduced the masses to Ray Charles and Big Joe Turner and honed the sound of Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, and Wilson Pickett by shifting production from New York and L.A. to recording studios south of the Mason-Dixon line. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. On Saturday, March 14th, ATL Collective relives the sounds of Jerry Wexler and Atlantic Records as part of the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. Joe Alterman is band leader and executive director of the festival, here to share some insights on Wexler, one of few non-musicians inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hello, Joe. Hey. Welcome back. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So Jerry Wexler, son of a window washer and a doting mother, grew up in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. How did he find his way to the music business? After he, he said he, quote, endured the obligatory bar mitzvah, which I like, <laughs> then he went to the army, and when he came back, he didn't have work, and he was just hanging out in jazz clubs. He was a big jazz fan. He was a real intelligent listener and loved the music, and basically he got a job at Billboard magazine, and he got lucky getting that job because in the interview, the guy asked him, like, you know, the obvious question at the, of that era, which is what record label is Nat King Cole on, and he didn't know. Somehow he still got the job. (laughs) But he was writing for Billboard, and then he ended up taking over the uh, publishing estate for Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls. And then two of his friends who he met hanging in these jazz clubs, Ahmet Erdogan and Herb Abramson, who ran Atlantic Records, asked him to take over the publishing for Atlantic. But he said he didn't want to work for friends. Mm -hmm. So they asked, what would you want to do? And he said, I want to be a partner. Well, that was very forthright, I guess would be one expression for it, for Jerry Wexler, who didn't want to, as Atlantic offered him, be promotions or in publishing. He wanted to be a producer, and he got his chance with a young singer that they'd signed named Ray Charles. Now, this was recorded at WGST, the Georgia Tech radio station. So what did Jerry Wexler, this young producer, get about Brother Ray? I think it's it's a, you know, the, the lesson here to me is the less is more thing. And I think Jerry just really understood what made Ray special and uh, how to encourage his, his career as a producer. For example, uh, he wrote in his book, he said, Jerry Wexler wrote, even on a bill with a host of other powerful performers, Ray Charles bears special distinction. Of all the artists I've worked with, only three rate the Appalachian genius, and he was the first. Huh. And Aretha and Dylan were the other two, by the way. But I think he really just understood how to work with him. He didn't overproduce him. He said that he actually said that I realized the best thing I could do with Ray was leave him alone. He needed a producer like Ray Kroc needed a hamburger. <laughs> and 
Ray Kroc, one of the founders of McDonald's. Exactly. What became McDonald's. So Ray Charles, Aretha, Dylan, all of them recorded in the South with Jerry Wexler. And maybe that's the most important contribution was migrating to the South in the mid-1960s. What did this bring to mm. the music? Jerry Wexler became taken with the town Muscle Shoals, and he ended up bringing a lot of his artists to record there. And I think for for many of the artists, they've spoken about how it wasn't just, you know, it was getting out of the city and it was relaxing, and which definitely aided in the music. But everyone really speaks of this, like, kind of a vibe in the air that was kind of a spiritual thing that made them feel the music in a deeper way. And so when they were there in Muscle Shoals recording at Fame Studios, uh, Jerry spoke about the magic there. Yeah, so that's where you also get this you know, a gospel, blues, country music, all of this stuff infused that he put to great effect with uh, Wilson Pickett, certainly Otis Redding. But maybe his most successful and legendary collaboration was with Aretha Franklin. Here is a, a bit of her first single for Atlantic Records. Aretha Franklin with Never Loved a Man. My guest is Joe Alterman, a band leader and executive director of the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. ATL Collective is going to be paying tribute to Jerry Wexler, the producer of those records, on Saturday, March 14th at City Winery in Atlanta. So clearly, Aretha was an enormous talent as a singer before he met her. You know, sang, grew up singing in her father's church. But her first string of records had not quite captured her fire. What what mm -hmm. role did Jerry Wexler play in Franklin's transformation? I really think he helped her find herself because if you listen to her on Columbia before she came to Atlantic, it's great stuff, but she's singing standards and it's not quite an Ella Fitzgerald knockoff, but it's more in that vein. And actually when she came to Atlantic Records for her audition, Jerry told her in the audition to, quote, drop the Judy Garland cabaret act. And then he found out that she played the piano in church. So he told her to sit at the piano and play. And that kind of changed, you know, everything. It wasn't that he had to push her into this Southern soul thing. It's that Columbia really didn't understand her gospel roots. And he kind of saw something in her that maybe she didn't see quite yet. And he really helped her get to it, I think. Well, this is all happening at a time when Perry Como and Doris Day are dominating, you know, the the radio play. And, and we know all these stories of musicians getting bilked by record deals in the early and mid-20th century, especially black artists who were, quote-unquote, discovered by white producers. Was that the reputation of Jerry Wexler in Atlantic? No, he actually, you know, this is part of the reason for us wanting to do this show is, you know, we're really focusing with ATL Collective on the, the Jewish people on the business side of the music. Last year we focused on chess records, and there's mm -hmm. some sketchy stuff there. But with Jerry Wexler, what's interesting is that he truthfully did not have a reputation for mistreating his artists at all. They really actually liked him from what, I, from what I've read, everything I've read. I mean, his, his Jewish black story is a little different in the chess record story in that you know, basically one of the things when he cr created that term rhythm and blues, he said that that was a term deserving of more enlightened times. Huh. So that's, that's he's quoted saying that. But he uh, basically Aretha Franklin was being honored somewhere four months after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And he she couldn't go. So he she asked him to go accept the award. Hmm. And at this ceremony, there was a big, uh, you know, a lot of speeches about, you know, blacks should take over the record industry. And Jerry was really a well-respected guy at this point. But King Curtis, Aretha's saxophone player, got him and dragged him out quickly because he had a hit on him. Someone was coming to kill him. 
And that kind of represents the Jewish-black breakup in American music. It's, mm. it's just such a fascinating story because he really was a good guy who loved the music and, you know, fought for these artists that he loved. And I guess it wasn't too long after that that Atlantic Records was bought by Warner Brothers or they mm. merged and, and, and he got out of that business and became a freelance producer. One of the jobs that he got was a pretty good gig uh, producing two of Bob Dylan's quote-unquote born-again records, <laughs> Slow Train Coming, recorded at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and the single You Gotta Serve Somebody. Let's hear a little of that. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. So a big turnaround for Bob Dylan, certainly, yes. <laughs> uh, being saved, uh, as the, the next record was called. What was that collaboration like? So it's funny because, you know, Dylan was born Jewish, Robert Zimmerman, mm -hmm. and Jerry was, he called himself a Jewish atheist. <laughs> and basically at this point, Dylan had converted to Christianity, and all those songs were about being born again. And Jerry talked about this record in his book, and he said that basically Dylan came to him because he wanted the sonority he'd heard in the Aretha and Otis uh, Redding records. And uh, Jerry was quoted saying, I liked the irony of Bob coming to me, the wandering Jew, to get the Jesus feel. <laughs> <laughs> and he delivered. Yes. Well, but, So Jerry died of congestive heart failure. That was at age 91 in 2008. So um, there's a story about what he wanted on his tombstone. Have you heard that? More bass. More bass. <laughs> but what was his legacy, do you think, in American music? Well, I think, you know, reading his autobiography and becoming familiar with his story, it's just so apparent, not just how much he loved the music, but how knowledgeable he was about the music and how that really worked in favor of producing these artists. For example, with Ray Charles, he really understood what those horn arrangements were about. They were kind of emulating Ray's comping on the piano. They were kind of George Shearing chord voicings. You know, he really got it. And I think he... He really represents like a producer that, you know, wasn't out to accomplish his objectives for the music. He was trying to figure out what what made these artists special and do whatever he could to to bring them out. You know, he always said, let Aretha be Aretha. Joe Alterman, thank you so much. Thank you. Joe Alterman is a band leader and executive director of the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. ATL Collective is going to relive the sounds of Jerry Wexler and Atlantic Records on Saturday, March 14th at City Winery in Atlanta. There's a bunch of other stuff coming up on the schedule as well. You can go to our website, gpbnews.org, to find it. You can also subscribe to our show for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and listen on your own time. That's all we've got for today on Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott reminding you to keep your hands washed. And if you want a better alternative to singing happy birthday twice when you're washing your hands, you can go through the whole R-E-S-P-E-C-T all the way to the Sakatami, Sakatami, Sakatami twice. And it's a much better hand wash. And in case you need a reminder, here is the Queen of Soul singing it herself. Uh -huh.